Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each week to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Well, um, last night and today is quite dramatic, especially when put in the context of the last three and a half years of instability, constant elections, and quite a lot of divisiveness. Um, it seems that we are on our way to a government, uh, arguably a stable government, uh, as things stand with about 87 to 88% of the vote counted. Uh, the right-wing religious bloc led by Prime Minister Netanyahu has 65 seats. Um, and there is, uh, I think it's four or five seats um, for the uh, Hadash Tal party, which won't sit with either bloc and the rest goes to um, basically the current government. Um, what might change in the next few hours, and apparently the Electoral Commission is promising that when we wake up tomorrow in Israel, we will have final results. Uh, not only do they need to count that final 13, well, within that 13%, I should say, the most important are what's called the double envelopes. And they're called double envelopes because if you do not vote in your home, you vote uh, somewhere else, you put two envelopes. What that means is diplomats abroad, people serving in the armed forces, people in uh, care homes, medical centers, um, people who have corona, um, people who just simply cannot get home um, in time. Uh, there is a rule that you can just turn up to a certain center specifically for uh, people with medical or mobility problems and ask to vote. All you have to do is sign a piece of paper that says that you are in some way disabled. You don't have to prove it. No one is there checking. And the numbers of those have gone up, especially after Corona, when a lot of people basically uh, took advantage of that situation. And a lot of Israelis now know that that is the way you can vote, especially people who are on vacation. A lot of people in Elat had no intention of going home. They were on vacation. So they just turned up to a local center. Regardless, the fact is that it's going to be around 600,000 votes. Now, that is a significant amount. In the last elections, we saw that the double envelopes didn't dramatically or drastically affect the result. It used to be in the past when the majority of double envelopes were those serving in the armed forces that they tended to go on the right because young 18 to 21 year olds, especially in Israel, veer to the right. So usually, uh, the right-wing uh, parties do very well, the ultra-Orthodox parties less well, because, and the Arabs less well because they have less people serving in the armed forces. Um, but these days, because, as I said, it's a much wider group of people, um, it's possible that it could change the results. Now, what could change? Basically, there's two parties uh, which are very close to the threshold. They are merits, which is uh, the threshold is 3.25. I believe that they're 3.2 something, very, very close uh, to the threshold. And then there is Balad, uh, an extreme uh, uh, Arab nationalist party, which is on 3.9, uh, 0.09, I should say, um, which is a little bit further away. 
Now, what that means is if both parties were to pass, then Netanyahu would not have a majority. If merits were to pass, and again, obviously the rest of the votes could obviously make a difference between the blocks, and or not necessarily between the blocks, but within the blocks, then that could put uh, Netanyahu's majority down to 61. As we know, as we've talked many, many times over the previous couple of years during elections, the key number here is to have 61 to be able to uh, have a, a vote of confidence and form a government. That's what Netanyahu was talking about throughout the elections. We need 61. We need 61. At the moment, he has 65. If all things stand as they are, he has a relatively stable government, because if you have 61, you are beholden to any one MK member of Knesset who decides they don't like this, they want to uh, push forward their particular issue and basically uh, decide not to vote with the government until they get their demands, in other words, blackmailing the system. Uh, Netanyahu has seen that uh, himself in the past, and we've seen uh, certainly in this current government how unwieldy uh, a 61 government is and how long it lasted. So Netanyahu will certainly be hoping that merits will remain under the threshold, that Balad will remain under the threshold, and he can get to 65, which will give him a nice, healthy government. Other things that could change is that um, it is possible that Netanyahu and you know, uh, openings are, are, are starting already now to look for opportunities to bring people across from the other side. Now, if you look at the, um, the parties there, you know, Ram is pretty much out of the question. Labour is pretty much out of the question. Yisrael Beitainu seems to be pretty much out of the question. Yeshatid is extremely unlikely. Uh, so the main uh, target for Netanyahu is the uh, Gantz-led party, which has uh, Gadi Eisenkot, a former IDF um, uh, chief of staff, and Gidon Saar. Now, Gidon Saar himself is probably not going to uh, meet any of Netanyahu's overtures. He's someone who has personal differences, ideological differences, perhaps he's even uh, you know, further to the right than Netanyahu, but there are people um, that he brought across for his party that no longer exists, that uh, came together with Gantz's party uh, to make the National Unity Party, but his particular part was called Tikva Chadashah, the New Hope, uh, having people like Zev Elkin, and there was a remarkable a statistic I read today that Zev Elkin has never sat in the opposition. He's moved around quite a lot in different parties, but the fact that he's never sat in the opposition and always seemed to find his way into the government probably will give uh, some, um, you know, pause within the Likud that he, maybe one or two others within that um, former Likud members uh, that left with Giron Sa could perhaps even give him an even stronger majority, especially if his majority is whittled down to 61 or 62. So that's where things stand at the moment. We hope to understand uh, exactly what the results are tomorrow, and then we'll basically be in a process where um, it's in the hands of the president, um, Buzi Herzog, Isaac Herzog, who has a ceremonial but a very important um, position in all this, once the results are final, he will then invite, he actually could invite even before, which I think he has done in the past, all the leaders of all the factions in the Knesset to ask them who they recommend. And on the basis of that, he will then give uh, one member of Knesset, usually the, uh, the, the, the leader of the larger largest party, and the one most likely to be able to form a government, which as things stand will be Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, 28 days to be able to form a government with 14 more if he so chooses. 
Uh, if he's unable to do so, then you can go for another MK and even a third one beyond that, then we go back to elections. Um, what seems to be happening, as opposed to previous rounds where Netanyahu wanted his full 42 days and used them, um, there does seem to be some urgency in trying to form a government. Um, there's even talk of trying to swear in the new government when the new uh, members of Knesset are going to be sworn in in a matter of days. Now, why is there such urgency? As I said, usually this process can take 42 days um, because there's a lot of uh, laws that come uh, into fruition on January 1st. Um, also, they have to pass a budget three months after the beginning of the year, which is when the previous budget, budget um, uh, finishes. And there's reforms in the kosher services in others, which the ultra-Orthodox will want to overturn before they become uh, a fact. Um, while, you know, 42 days is, you know, is, is before January 1st, you know, you have to also then legislate, you have to overturn laws, you have to, you know, all, all this process takes time. And especially if you're going to move into ministries, that also is going to take up time. So there does appear to be a large amount of urgency on the part of this government to move things ahead. Now, what are the other problems? Uh, uh, you know, let's you know. Let's first look at the winners and, and losers. First of all, the biggest winner seems to be Benjamin Netanyahu. He's made this comeback. It's something that we've talked about, and I said on a number of occasions that I believe that that's the most likely uh, outcome. And it seems that uh, you know Netanyahu was able to rally his voters, especially after for the first time in 13 years going into an election as an opposition candidate. Um, he was able to rally his supporters, but most importantly, uh, other parties in his bloc were able to also increase their support. Netanyahu, as things stand, uh, didn't really increase massively uh, the members of Knesset that he'll have, maybe one or two, but where he certainly, his bloc is certainly gained from is the meteoric rise of the um, religious Zionist party. The religious Zionist party in the last Knesset I think had um, uh, seven seats. Um, today, as things stand, it has fourteen seats. Now that is a, you know, it's it's a it's a massive increase. It's it's a double of its support, and it becomes the uh, second largest party in a prospective government, and the first time in the history of the state of Israel that a religious Zionist party is the third largest party in the Knesset. So it's a massive achievement for the party of uh, Betalos Smotrich and Itamar Ben Gvir. Now, the fact that especially Itmar Ben-Gvir, who was seen as a pariah uh, by some around the world, is seen as uh, extreme right, uh, there is a certain amount of concern um, amongst governments. There's even talk of uh, the Biden administration sending messages to Netanyahu that he could be problematic. Perhaps they would boycott him personally. Um, all these things uh, potentially could happen. There is certainly some unease about it, but the, the fact that uh, he got 14, uh, they got 14 together means that they're pretty much at this point, at least, an inseparable part of a future government. If Gantz's party would have got more than Smotrich Ben-Gavir, then there would have been a lot of pressure uh, for them to uh, replace perhaps the Religious Zionist Party with the National Unity Party of Benny Gantz. But the numbers, certainly, especially if merits do pass the electoral threshold, are simply not there to be able to form a government. And uh, Netanyahu will certainly want to form a government. The ultra-Orthodox bloc is certainly another winner. 
they've increased uh, their support. I think they are on 14 seats and now they're up to 19. Again, these are not final numbers, but certainly um, it seems that the ultra-Orthodox uh, parties, especially Shas, massively increased. Uh, the um, Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox party, United Torah Judaism, held, held its uh, number of mandates, but the, um, the Shas party, probably the only party that seriously looked at this situation with the cost of live, with the rise in the cost of living, and really look at looking at microeconomics and understanding the pain of the people and running a, a, a you know, a relatively straightforward campaign explaining that, you know, that they will change the situation, really improved their uh, uh, support base. And, and what we've talked about before, uh, as opposed to the United Torah Judaism list, which almost all of its voters are ultra-Orthodox, the Shas ha has a lot of supporters outside the ultra-Orthodox community, within the religious, within the traditional, and with even the secular Sephardi Mizrahi population in the development uh, towns uh, and the periphery, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, big losers um, certainly is the bloc led by uh, Yair Lapid, Yair Lapid increased his Knesset uh, representation significantly, but as those uh, to his left would argue, at the cost of being able to block a Netanyahu government. There really wasn't much of a chance of Lapid being able to form a government. The best hope he had was be able to have a blocking uh, majority with the Arab parties that would never sit in a government and probably wouldn't even be able to be relied on, but at least it would keep Netanyahu's block under 59. That is what was hoped for. Um, but uh, Lapid, basically, um, what Labour and Merits are now claiming is that Lapid cared only about his party and didn't care about the bloc. And because of that, Netanyahu has a significant majority. Um, you know, th this, this is certainly bearing itself out, the fact that Merits could find itself outside the Knesset, and Labour are down to four seats, meaning that the parties to the left of Yeshatid were sacrificed. Uh, for a greater Yeshatid uh, vote. It seems that uh, some of his pollsters and uh, communication strategists got it wrong. They promised or they um, suggested, according to their understanding, that Netanyahu would not get a majority and merits and Labour would pass the threshold comfortably. And because of that, Lapid did not do what he did in the previous election by calling on some of his voters to also to, to vote for Labour and merits. He didn't do that, even though Merritt's especially called for him to do that. And as a result, he has no blocking uh, majority at all. Um, so those are some of the winners and losers. As I said, Merritt's at the moment finds itself uh, well below, well, not well below, slightly below the threshold. Uh, Ayelet Sheked's uh, Jewish Home Party, which, you know, had never really got that close to crossing the threshold, really failed miserably. I think it only received about 40,000 seats, which I don't even think made uh, 1.5%. I think she got 1.4%, well below the threshold. Now, it turns out there was a bit of uh, controversy today because um, there was a member of the Likud party, Yoav Kish, who suggested that um, Shaked's run, at least till the end, had been coordinated uh, with the Likud um, to basically raise the number of votes, which will obviously change the dynamics between the blocks. And even that 40,000 that came out and voted, voted for Shaked changed the dynamics enough that if the situation change, uh, stays as is, uh, Merit's uh, numbers, even though they're relatively high, will not be enough to get over that number because 
of the total number of votes, uh, leading to the percentages allotted to each party. Um, it was subsequently denied, but the fact that Yoav Kish came out and said it on live TV, and at first Shaked uh, said that was true and then denied it, um, certainly leads a lot uh, of the intrigue, and it certainly wouldn't surprise me if that was true, um, because there was never really a chance for Shaked uh, to pass the threshold, but she ran to the end. Perhaps also there's a, there's a rule that if you... Um, if you get under 1%, you don't get your deposit back or some, uh, when, you, when you enter an election, and that can be significant money. Maybe that's another reason that she ran. But certainly that, uh, that seems to be perhaps another step to the, even though she failed miserably in the polls, perhaps to her rehabilitation on the right. That's what some are saying. They're saying that uh, Shaked was not promised anything for running to the end. But perhaps the fact that she contributed to a potential right-wing religious government means that perhaps um, she's on her way to forgiveness. Uh, these are some of the, the intrigues that are behind the scenes. So there's there's certainly a lot more to talk about, and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. Um, but uh, it does seem that it will be, at this point in time, a lot less complicated to form a government than in all the previous attempts over the last three years. All right. Thank you so much. So Earl Simones asks, what is the percentage of people who live in Israel that, that are able to vote? Say it again, sorry. Yeah. The percentage? Um, that's a good question. I think the, uh, I mean, everyone over the age of 18 is, is able to vote who's a citizen. I don't know the exact numbers. I think there was something like 6 million uh, there, there's something like six million and something have the because Israel has a very young uh, population, and I, I the the actual uh, percentage of voting was sixty seven percent. So they were talking at one point that it was going to be the highest for a generation. In the end, it wasn't quite there. But interestingly enough, it was the highest turnout since two thousand and fifteen. If we remember two thousand and fifteen, uh, the government just before that was one without the ultra-Orthodox as well, one that uh, held the left-wing Yeshatid party, one that Netanyahu was trying to break up from the moment of its inception. Um, so, you know, it, it seems that, uh, uh, you know, a number of those parties that had to, uh, on the right, in the religious camp, who had to sit in the opposition, again, were able to rally their people and say, we, you know, this government is not what we wanted. If you want to change, you've got to come out and vote. And it did seem that the uh, as I said, the representation of the ultra-Orthodox community, especially. Interestingly enough, they're talking uh, on the news that certain sects within the Hasidic community, because as we know, the ultra-Orthodox community is split into various sectors. The Hasidic community, some sects within the uh, Hasidic community haven't voted in the past because ideologically they do not believe in it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and some of them actually were told by their rabbis to come out and vote for the first time which also led to an increase in their support. Thank you. If you don't mind, can we dive a little deeper into that? That was my next question. What exactly can we infer from, from there being such a high percentage of voters this, this round? As I said, um, this is the first election in 13 years where Netanyahu and the right-wing religious bloc uh, were in the opposition. And from the day that the government was formed, the current government, soon probably to be ended, uh, was formed. There was a delegitimization, uh, a, pol a, a political attack that so this is a left wing. Um, um, you know, it's failing. It failed 
you know, this, these are the arguments. Feldon Corona, Feldon the Economy, it had Ram, which is a Islamist party, even though its leader had been legitimized by Netanyahu previously and had crossed the Rubicon, as they said, and admitted that Israel was a Jewish state, said all the right things. But the fact is that uh, it was still delegitimized as a, 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 as a party associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. And the fact that the government had merits and labor and yeshatid, it was constantly being called left wing, even though it also had right wing and centrist elements. Um, and it really managed to galvanize the right wing. Uh, the right wing is a motivated uh, wing. And when they're in power, especially in the last elections, uh, they didn't come out as much. Uh, they, you know, maybe many just thought that they didn't necessarily need to, but a year and a half in the opposition with the constant attacks, um, with the constant delegitimization, uh, meant that it really uh, ensured that the ultra-Orthodox party, again, who need to be in the government because their interests are less ideological, less about security issues, but more about having access to budgets uh, for their yeshivot um, and making sure that their, um, their, 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 their community doesn't go to the army. They have control over religious uh, issues like uh, kashrut, like wedding, divorce, et cetera, et cetera, which also there had been some changes with this current government. So they were able to rally um, their, you know, their voters to go out in much higher numbers, which also, as we said, um, led to the Religious Zionist Party doubling its uh, representation as well, because they care about these issues. They care about the Jewish identity of the state of Israel. They care about religion and state issues, and they care about security issues. Absolutely. Thank you so much. An anonymous attendee asks, could we accept last summer's terrorism attacks as a meaningful factor in the right-wing landslide? Um, I mean, it depends what which, which attacks you're talking about. Interestingly enough, they did show, I saw some statistics earlier, in the mixed cities, don't forget, um, during the last Operation Guardian of the Walls, which was actually led by um, Netanyahu, the the previous government, not the, the current one now, the previous one led by Netanyahu, where there was a lot of riots, pogroms, whatever you want to call it, even murders, uh, old Jews in mixed cities and, and you know, Arab rioting, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it was in these cities that we saw a massive rise in the right wing. We also saw a massive rise on the Arab side in these mixed cities voting for more extreme Arab parties. So probably, you know, you can go back to, um, to those sort of moments and there's you know, a rise on the right in the Jewish uh, sectors within these cities, but also a rise in the, right, the far right in the Arab sectors. Um, so that also probably led to it. And the fact that every, listen, there's been terrorist attacks, there's been rockets launched from Gaza pretty much under every government you know, for a number of years. Um, but obviously every attack which takes place under a government which has been called left-wing and weak and concessionary and, and the rest of it obviously adds up. Uh, so certainly the fact that there were a number of um, uh, terrorist attacks and there were murders, uh, you know, earlier in the year uh, certainly uh, played into this. Uh, one could also argue that the current government has actually been pretty strong on security. You know, there hasn't been a day, especially over the last few months, where the IDF has not been in the major cities making arrests, taking out uh, terrorist organizations. So both sides could say that they're stronger than the other on security, but at the end of the day, um, the right wing made a more powerful um, case to the public, as is seen by the numbers. 
Thank you. Jack Wasserman asked, Netanyahu said he would neutralize the maritime deal with Lebanon. What would that mean? Um, it's, 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 it's an interesting one because he didn't say that he would cancel it. He said he would neutralize it, which is a term that can mean so many different things and purposefully. So I don't believe that they're going to cancel it. Um, you know, it's not a major issue. And I think if it's not dealt with, um, I don't think there'll be too many uh, cries from within the, the right-wing religious bloc. Perhaps they, they feel that there's bigger fish to fry. I don't see them cancelling it at this point. The Israeli government uh, has already signed on to it, so it would mean quite a, you know, a, a, quite a, a lot of activity to undo it. Um, and again, you know, a lot of things that are said during election season aren't necessarily going to take place. You know, Netanyahu has said in the past, he would place sovereignty over Judea and Samaria. He would take down the illegal Palestinian settlement of Khan al-Akhma. It stood for many, many years under a Netanyahu government. So I would take with a pinch of salt a lot of things that are said during elections. Um, but it, it's possible that they do have some plans to at least deal with it in one way. But I'd be quite surprised if it was completely cancelled from the Israeli point of view. Thank you. And... Uh, do you, Stuart Broad asks, do you believe that there will be any appreciable change in Netanyahu's policy towards Iran's nuclear program, weapons program, vis-a-vis -vis Lapids? Uh, probably not. Um, Netanyahu has been criticized in the past for using a different tone, especially uh, with the American administration uh, picking more open battles. Um, but I think essentially, you know, it's the same. Uh, you know, they're trying to stop it diplomatically perhaps, you know, behind the scenes militarily. Um, so I don't think it will be markedly different. Perhaps the diplomatic approach, the tone will be different. Um, but the fact is also what's playing into that is the fact that the, the return to the JCPOA seems to be very far from the table at this point, especially with um, the basic uh, reports that Iran is helping Russia in its drone attacks on Ukraine. This is certainly enraged many parts of the West, including the US. Um, so at the moment, even according to um, uh, Mali, I can't remember his first name, who's known to be one of the more dovish members of the administration on this, he's in fact leading the negotiations and is very keen to get back to the JCPOA, has admitted that uh, there's just nothing on it at the moment. The Americans are not even, they're, they're, they're looking at many other things to do with Iran and certainly not uh, a return to the JCPOA, but obviously, things can change relatively quickly. Absolutely. Edward Lipson asked, do you anticipate a difference in policy towards Ukraine with a new right-wing government? That's an interesting question. Um, Netanyahu has prided himself in the past for having a good relationship with Putin. Uh, and he even did attack sometimes this government for its position on it. But, you know, it's very easy to attack from the opposition. At the end of the day, the position is relative, you know, it, it's the same position. Israel has to really navigate very carefully, first of all, because, you know, Russia is next door in Syria and Israel's interest in ensuring that Iran doesn't have uh, access to the border with Israel with all its capabilities to attack and terrorize the people of Israel is, a, is, is the primary factor. The second one is there's a very large Jewish community in Russia that it has to, you know, has to keep an eye on and certainly shouldn't antagonize uh, the Putin government too much. That, that is 
kind of like the approach I think most prime ministers will take while trying to help Ukraine as much uh, as possible as this government has done, uh, but not sending anything, let's say, um, uh, of a aggressive military nature. It certainly has provided intelligence, especially on the Iranian drone um, infrastructure, and it has helped defensive, and it has set up a hospital, and it's done more than probably most countries in the world. Um, but it it knows that there's a line that it cannot cross because, you know, Russia have, you know, uh, gained very close relationships recently with a lot of Israel's opponents and enemies, and it has to um, tread very, very carefully in this area. So I, I, I can't imagine that too much will change there. Thank you. And um, how do you foresee the the relationship with uh, I mean, Netanyahu seems pretty, pretty set in being prime minister right now, correct? Yeah. Okay. How do you see the, uh, the, the, the relationship with that? So. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Uh, so how do you see the relationship going forward with uh, President Biden? Well, they know each other. Um, there's a respect there. There's not necessarily agreements. Um, I think there was a comment that Biden made a number of years ago. He said, I don't agree with you, Bibi, but I love you. Something like that. I can't remember. It's, it's sort of that foxy tone that, tone that uh, uh, President Biden uses. So they'll know each other. They'll be very aware of each other. Um, it's, it's no secret that the Biden administration would have preferred uh, Lapid to, uh, you know, uh, continue as prime minister. They were, you know, they were quite happy with this government. They certainly will be less happy with, uh, you know, what, what seems to be a potential right wing religious government. Uh, as I said, you know, they have certain concerns, to put it in diplomatic language, about some of the elements uh, within, but at the end of the day, the relationship between the Americans uh, and the Israelis goes beyond individuals. It, there's there's a lot of cooperation there. There's a lot of understanding. Um, so I think it, it will it will it will go fine. Um, but again, it all depends how much push there is from the far right within the government. If there is a push to expand settlement building, if there's a push to even put sovereignty, if there's a push to take a harsher hand against Palestinians or Israeli Arabs uh, within Israel, uh, then that then then I think Netanyahu will see quite a lot of pushback from the uh, Biden administration. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Thank you, Ashley, for taking time to update us this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Jonathan Spire discussing is Erdogan's Turkey aiding in jihadist takeover of northeast Syria? Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.